From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, blizzards and cold grip state after state, grounding planes, cutting power, and canceling political events in Iowa. We'll have the latest. Also, Ecuador declares a state of emergency after car bombs and a televised takeover. An IT mistake that smashed the lives of hundreds of innocent British postal workers. And Sandra Huller on her new film, where a family plays gardens and picnics next to a concentration camp. Definitely it's not just another film. No, not at all. I think I will never forget the work on this. Her new film, The Zone of Interest. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, January 13, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Supporters of Taiwan's Lai Qingda are celebrating his election victory. Voters swept Lai into the president's office in today's elections despite threats from China, which claims sovereignty over Taiwan. Lai ran on the ticket of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, which rejects China's claim. U.S. military has carried out another strike on a site in Yemen controlled by Iranian-backed Houthi militants. The strike was launched early today after strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. that hit more than 60 targets in an effort to put a stop to Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea. NPR's Peter Kenyon. The airstrikes followed a number of warnings uh, from President Joe Biden, the U.S. Central Command, uh, warning that these Houthi attacks on commercial ships transiting the Red Sea had to stop. Uh, and the airstrikes have done considerable damage, uh, the latest targeted uh, Houthi radar facility. But so far, the strikes do not appear to have deterred the Houthis. Their public response, at least, has been to declare that their attacks will continue. The Houthis say their attacks are in retaliation for the war in Gaza. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak says the attacks in Yemen constitute self-defense. Philip Marks reports on Sunak's latest visit to the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. The UK was responding to multiple Red Sea attacks on international vessels with guided missiles launched from four Royal Air Force jets based on Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean. The US targeted at least a dozen other sites. On a visit to Kyiv to announce fresh funding for Ukraine and its defense against Russia, Sunak said the Houthis' attack on a Royal Navy warship Tuesday prompted his decision. The Houthis were, he insisted, putting innocent lives at risk, disrupting the global economy and destabilizing the region, and the joint U.S.-U.K. strikes had successfully disrupted their capabilities. His chief political opponent, Keir Starmer, has supported Sunak's actions, but other lawmakers are demanding he answer questions in Parliament about the assault, something he's promised to do Monday. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. Two days before the Iowa caucuses, the state is being hit by extreme weather. Steve Futterman reports from Des Moines. Normally here in Iowa, the final two days before the caucuses consists of barnstorming by candidates across the state. Not this year. A winter storm has brought snow, record low temperatures and wind and has forced the candidates to change their plans. Former President Trump has turned several planned appearances into virtual events. Nikki Haley has done the same. All the candidates are urging their supporters to show up on Monday. This was the pitch by Ron DeSantis. I know it's going to be cold. Uh, I know it's going to be um, um, not the most pleasant, but I don't think you'll ever be able to cast a vote that has more impact. It will be the coldest caucus day ever. With the wind chill factor added, temperatures could be 20 to 40 degrees below zero. For NPR News, I'm Steve Futterman in Des Moines. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Heavy rain this morning is raising new flood concerns. National Weather Service meteorologist Tori Dooley says heavy rain fell overnight and continues this morning. We'll definitely have periods of moderate to heavy rain continuing to fall across the state of Massachusetts, likely leading to some slow times on the roadways, poor visibility, and on top of that, some gusty southeasterly winds. That could produce some locally uh, damaging wind gusts. So power outages are definitely a possibility, and things start to improve pretty quickly. One to two inches of rain is in the forecast. Dooley says minor to moderate coastal flooding is possible during high tide, which will be between noon and 1 p.m. Boston's projected to be a foot above flood stage. Street flooding is possible in trouble spots such as Morrissey Boulevard. Swollen rivers also are expected to cause local flooding. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency is reporting 5,000 power outages across the state. 30 flights have been delayed at Logan Airport this morning. The website FlightAware is also reporting almost 50 flight cancellations. Wind gusts are preventing the Steamship Authority from running ferries between Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket. The State Ballot Law Commission will meet next week to consider two challenges, objecting to Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the Republican presidential primary ballot and general election ballot in Massachusetts. A labor attorney and a liberal political group argue the former president should be disqualified because of his role in the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. But Senator Elizabeth Warren tells WBUR's Radio Boston that she believes voters should have the final say. The importance of that vote, I just, whatever it was before, it is more than ever critically important to our democracy. It is critically important to the individual liberty of our people. It is critically important to our future and the future of our children and grandchildren. The Massachusetts Republican Party warns that removing Trump through legal maneuverings would set a dangerous president. It's 44 degrees in Boston. WVUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us. Windy City... I'll say Chicago is just the latest part of the country to face extreme weather this weekend, snow, sleet, and wind. Temperatures expected to descend into single digits tonight. This comes as the city was scheduled to begin moving migrants out of city shelters. Member station WBEZ's Kate Grossman joins us. Kate, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Kate, Chicagoans know how to roll with snowy weather, don't we? What are the concerns about this particular snow? Well, meteorologists here were predicting a possible blizzard. So, of course, that got people worried. And they were predicting what's known as heart attack snow. This comes from when, in 1987, about two dozen people died, mostly from the stress of shoveling in what's become known as the heart attack snowstorm. (laughs) So here we have meteorologist Jake Peter explaining how the snow predicted for this storm is similar to that heavy 1987 snow. Probably where it earned that name is when shoveling snow that is wetter is heavier to move around. That can be more strain on the body. So um, 
Thankfully, much of the worst predictions did not come to pass yesterday. There were a few inches in the city, um, though there was much as as much as six to eight in the suburbs. But it was it was a uh, definitely treacherous outside. But it was not a blizzard. Forty to fifty mile wind gusts, and you know more than a thousand flights canceled. But not but not a blizzard. Still, um, the biggest concern is the cold coming. Um, we're expecting wind chills of minus seventeen degrees um, tonight. Have Chicagoans gotten out of the practice of dealing with wintry weather in recent years, Kate? Um, as a lifelong Chicagoan, I would say yes. <laughs> you know, it's been very mild so far this year. We had 50 degrees um, on Christmas Day here. So with climate change, you know, raising temperatures and causing variability in our weather, people just really are not used to it, this cold weather. And so when locals here heard about our first big snow coming. There was a lot of hype and hyperventilating, really. Um, you know, but for some, of course, mm -hmm. this is really justified. Not everyone in Chicago has, has history with this kind of weather. weather. We have nearly 35,000 migrants who've come to the city since 2022, mostly from warm Latin America. And Chicago was going to begin moving them out of shelters after instituting a 60-day limit. What's happening with that? Well, yesterday, Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson said the city was pausing those plans to move immigrants or move the migrants out after 60 days. There are some um, exceptions to that policy, particularly during single-digit temperatures, um, as we are expecting within the next uh, week or so. So the mayor said um, they're pushing that eviction date until at least January 22nd. Um, and overall, there are nearly 8,000 migrants who have who have received um, these 60-day notices. Not clear how many of them have housing lined up. And this is really coming to a boil politically. Yesterday, Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois urged the Texas governor to stop sending migrants in this to Illinois in this cold. He said, I'm appealing to your humanity. The governor's office said, sorry, we're still going to send them. And it's going to be in the w freezing temperatures here in Chicago. Kate Grossman, thanks so much for being with us and stay strong. Neither, Thank you. Neither snow nor rain nor contradictory poll results can keep Ron Elving from joining us now. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. The last weekend before the Iowa caucuses, the official start of race for presidential delegates. What's the lay of the land in Iowa this weekend, as much as we can tell with all the snow? It's tempting to say that uh, everything is frozen in place, Scott. <laughs> Including the candidates, uh, caucus night is always a test of whose voters are most motivated to get out and travel to these caucus sites. But this will be an extreme iteration of that test. There's no sign of erosion, though, for President Trump. He's been leading the polls with at least half the vote. And it would be amazing if he got less. Uh, the only question is who finishes second, and that was long assumed to be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. But this, this week... Polls have him falling behind South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who has, of course, been the big story in the media now for months, even as other candidates like Chris Christie have dropped out. Donald Trump spent some time uh, that he could have spent in Iowa instead of New York. Instead, he was in New York at a civil fraud trial over his businesses. Uh, the judge says he'd like to hand down the decision by the 31st, but even then, there are a lot more legal concerns that are going to take up Trump's campaign schedule, aren't there? 
Yes, he's been in quite involved with this civil case, which does entail hundreds of millions of dollars. He showed up for closing arguments, but instead of addressing the case, launched into an attack on his political adversaries and the legal system until the judge gaveled an end to it. Uh, in the months ahead, he still has to face those criminal charges, federal and state, for his efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat and his role in the January 6th assault on the Capitol, and, of course, the oldest charges for keeping top-secret documents after he left office, a key to his legal strategy has been to push all these criminal trials back mm -hmm. later and later and deep into the election year, probably until after he has secured the Republican nomination, which may be by March, and possibly until after he might be back in office. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, President Biden has been dealing with... the. Uh his own, if I might call them, campaign distractions, including wars, and a Pentagon chief who's been in the hospital. The war in Gaza has raised tensions in the region generally and brought on a rash of attacks on international shipping through the Red Sea. Uh, this week, the U.S. and the United Kingdom led several countries in striking the bases in Yemen, where one group aligned with Hamas has been launching attacks on the shipping lanes. Uh, meanwhile, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin seems to have hoped he could be treated for prostate cancer without telling the president and others about it. Uh, Biden called it a lapse in judgment, but it is beyond awkward, and questions will persist when Austin returns to the Pentagon. Uh, and looking back to the presidential campaign, the saying attributed to Donald Rumsfeld, of course, is uh, you go to war with the army that you have. How is President Biden's army of Democrats looking right now? Smaller, or apparently smaller, according to the Gallup poll this past week. Uh, Gallup has released numbers showing only 27% of Americans identify as Democrats. Now, that's the smallest percentage in a very long time, and equal, by the way, to the 27% who identify as Republicans. Now, Democrats have not always been a majority, of course, uh, but they generally have outnumbered the Republicans over the years through our history. Of course, I remember there being supposedly quite a few Democrats in 1984, 1972, when a couple of Republican candidates named Reagan and Nixon won 49 states. Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, the percentage of Americans who identify with neither party is up over 40 percent. And you know, it's not hard to understand. That way you can turn on the news, open the newspaper, you can hear about Washington and the campaign and say, you know, I don't really have anything to do with any of those people. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Psh! Hey, Pally, want to buy a French Bulldog? Cheap? French Bulldogs are adorable with their little crinkly foreheads, upright ears, and stumpy tails. They toddle along on squat little legs in an almost Napoleonic strut that could make a grown adult, or even me, gush. Aww. There was a rash of Frenchy thefts in and around Washington, D.C. late last year, several of them at gunpoint. In November, a dozen French bulldogs vanished from a pet store in Gardena, California. And in Minnesota, five French puppies were allegedly kidnapped and held for ransom. French bulldogs are the most popular dog breed in the United States, according to the American Kennel Club, and are now also the most stolen, according to the club's affiliate, AKC Reunite, which helps owners track down missing pets. Is it because Frenchies are irresistible? More likely it's because they're the canine equivalent of jewelry, small, light, and costly. A French bulldog from a reputable breeder can cost thousands of dollars. 
They look easy to slip under a coat and resell to someone who wants a sweet deal on a cute dog and doesn't ask too many questions. And if that dog has a microchip or ID tattoo, it may be weeks or months before the person who bought a hot Frenchie discovers it. And would someone who bought a pedigree dog under the table ever really contact the original owner to admit it? Dog thefts of all breeds have spiked in recent years. Dog napping is typically considered a property crime, save for service animals. Stealing a dog who might have cost $3,000 is charged under the law as if the puppy were a computer, a bracelet, or an HDTV. It is tempting to be comic about French bulldog robberies. I was working the overnight shift on the West End when the call came in. My Bruno, cried a lady, he's gone. But being robbed of a dog is not like losing any of those things. It is the theft from the heart of our lives. A presence that curls up by us, runs, plays, comforts, amuses, and yes, loves us. We talk to our dogs. We put them next to children and family photos and hold them in our arms next to our hearts. You'd like to think even dog nappers might tell themselves there are better ways to get money than this. Edition is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for starting your Saturday with 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 818. In about 20 minutes, you'll get the story on the British post office scandal involving the wrongful prosecution of hundreds of postal workers. That and much more ahead on Weekend Edition. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. On Monday, when the first votes of the 2024 presidential election season are cast in Iowa, WBUR will be keeping you informed. Listen Monday night at 8 o'clock for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus. That's here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. The winter weather that's blasting much of the U.S. this weekend has knocked out power to more than 250,000 customers in Michigan and Wisconsin, and it's led to thousands of flight delays. In Iowa, Republican presidential candidates have been forced to cancel campaign events on this final weekend, heading into Monday night's caucuses. The U.S. military has launched a search and rescue operation for two Navy sailors reported missing while conducting operations off the coast of Somalia. And New Zealand's former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern got married this weekend. She married her longtime partner in a private ceremony today. They initially planned to wed in 2022, but the pandemic forced them to postpone it. 
I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for chefs and designed for restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. It's been called the Democracy Super Bowl. More than half the world is set to go to the polls in 2024, regional elections to national leaders. Eighteen of those elections are in Africa, where South Africa's ruling National Congress Party, the continent's oldest liberation party, embodied for so long by Nelson Mandela, faces its most competitive electoral challenge since the end of apartheid in 1994. Reporter Kate Bartland joins us from Johannesburg. Kate, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. Could the party of Nelson Mandela uh, lose power, or at least its majority? Power? Definitely not. But this is certainly the most critical election in 30 years of South African democracy. The ANC has a huge legacy here. I mean, it brought black majority rule to South Africa. Multiple polls in the past few months have shown the NC getting below 50%. However, President Cyril Ramaphosa said publicly last week he's confident the NC will retain its majority. Is 30 years enough to erase the impact of colonialism and apartheid? My answer to that is 30 years is not enough. We need more time. Ramaphosa may sound confident there, but the party is privately worried about its dwindling support. And, and why do you think the party has lost popularity? I mean, already the last elections in 2019 uh, showed its popularity was waning. Uh, the ANC's share of the vote then dropped to 57%. That was down from a massive 69% in 2004 elections. Ray Hartley is with South African think tank, the Brent House Foundation, and they did an October poll that showed the ANC getting just 41% in this year's elections. And he told me that the ANC has never been weaker. I think this is the most important election since 1994. And for the first time, there is going to be some political competition. And political competition should make all parties better, should make them fight harder to win voters over, and that's good for democracy and for delivery. I mean, you asked uh, why the ANC's popularity has waned. There's several key factors, including seemingly endless corruption scandals in government, high levels of unemployment, with youth unemployment at a shocking 60%, over 60%, and an energy crisis that saw almost daily blackouts around the country last year. You know, we never know if the lights are going to be on or not. South Africans are really fed up. Uh, this is supposed to be the most industrialized country on the continent, but there's low economic growth. The constant water and electricity shortages make doing business and just daily life really difficult. Who are the main challengers to the ANC? 
the biggest opposition party here is the Democratic Alliance. It already holds power locally in some key areas, but it struggles with a major image problem. Many black South Africans won't vote DA because the leader is a white man and they see it as a white party. Another alternative is the radical left-wing populist party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, and a coalition of seven opposition parties just came together last August to form a pre-election agreement known as the multi-party charter. Also, former President Jacob Zuma, a lifelong ANC stalwart, unexpectedly just threw his weight behind a newly formed opposition party, saying he wouldn't vote for the ANC. The party has called him Conto with Seasway. It's been a huge story here because the party cheekily steals its name from the ANC's now disbanded arm wing, which Zuma himself was closely involved with for years during the apartheid era. But it's unclear if any of these parties by themselves could pose much of a threat to the ANC, really. You know, Ramaphosa came in on a wave of popularity. He was seen as someone who would clean up the ANC and, and what many considered the mess left behind by Zuma. But he's been cautious to keep party unity, and lots of South Africans think he's failed to act. Reporter Kate Bartlett in Johannesburg, thanks so much. Thank you. Ecuador has long seemed a peaceful country in South America, safe from drug cartels and gang violence until this week. A group of gunmen took over a TV station in Guayaquil on Tuesday and held staff hostage during a live broadcast. The gunmen were eventually detained by security forces. Nobody was killed at the TV station, but it was just one of a series of allegedly coordinated attacks that rocked Ecuador over 24 hours. More than 30 car bombs went off across the country. Riots broke out in several prisons. At least 11 people have been killed this week. Ecuador's president, Daniel Noboa, declared a state of emergency and said, we are in a state of war. Sebastian Hurtado is founder and president of uh, the political risk consultancy group Profitas that's based in Quito. He joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thank you for having me. What do you think sparked the violence this week? You know, prisons in Ecuador for some years now basically serve as headquarters for criminal organizations. And the government was planning on intervening in some of these prisons and moving some criminal leaders to different prisons. Ahead of that, a major a criminal leader managed to escape. So basically, President Novoa reacted to the situation by first declaring a state of emergency, and after that, declaring, which is a first declaration of war against criminal organizations and their leaders. And basically, what we saw this week was a reaction from these criminal organizations against the action of the state. As we mentioned, Mr. Hurtado, Ecuador had seemed for so many years a peaceful and successful society. There have been issues going on underneath that appearance over the years? Things started changing probably five years back where we started to see some significant changes in the drug trade and in the drug trade business. You know, hardly any cocaine is produced in Ecuador. Most of the cocaine that goes through Ecuador and gets exported to the United States and Europe and Asia comes from either Colombia or Peru, and mostly Colombia. 
around 2016, Colombian guerrillas in the south of Colombia got demobilized. And uh, that created a vacuum of, of leadership in the drug trade. And uh, a new criminal organizations took over and ex started exploring new ways of moving drugs around the region. And Ecuador provided like an excellent base to move drugs and export them for many reasons. One being Ecuador is a fully dollarized economy. So that makes uh, using the US dollar easier and laundering US dollar easier. And, and the second thing is, you know, Ecuador has very weak uh, security and state institutions. How supportive are Ecuadorans of um... Uh, of President Noboa's declaration of a state of emergency, or as he said, we're at war now, uh, and his his attempted reform of the prison system. This has become a major political wing for President Noboa right now. You know, crime was the main concern of Ecuadorians, has been the main concern for Ecuadorians for a number of years now. And uh, we all have, been, have become very frustrated with the uh, past efforts from previous governments that haven't obtained results. So the fact that President Novoa took this bold step has been well received by many, not only in the general public, but also even from opposition groups in Congress. But does the threat of more violence continue and, and what effect does that have on events? We all have, I mean, or some of us, have some concerns about whether there's a clear security strategy behind these recent actions from the government. And uh, we're all hoping that this is not just an initiative that throws just brute force to the problem. Does the United States have a role to play in support of Ecuador at this point, or would that be destructive? No, definitely. The support from the international community, from neighboring countries, and especially from the United States will be crucial. And I understand the, the Ecuadorian government is planning to announce a support package from the United States government. It will include uh, logistic support, intelligence support, some experts on the ground. But uh, I, I think that the support from the United States, it, it's going to be key. Sebastian Hurtado is founder and president of uh, the political risk consultancy group Profitas. Thanks so much for being with us. No, thank you for having me. Here's Oscar Buzz for Coleman Domingo, both for the color purple and for his portrayal of Bayard Rustin, a key force in getting hundreds of thousands of everyday Americans together on the National Mall for 1963's March on Washington. These ordinary human beings who were just doing what was in front of them to right some wrongs. Sunday on Weekend Edition, Aisha speaks with Domingo and one of the activists who worked alongside the real Bayard Rustin. You can listen tomorrow on your smart speaker in the morning, your phone, or on your radio. This week, regulators approved a new kind of cryptocurrency investment called a Bitcoin exchange traded fund. Got it? Or ETF. Crypto companies are hopeful it will move crypto into the mainstream. And as NPR's David Gura reports, critics worry that investors won't fully understand their risks. 
These new investment funds make it a lot easier to invest in Bitcoin. An ETF just simplifies access. That's Kathy Wood, the CEO of ARK Invest, and she just got the green light from the government to sell a new Bitcoin ETF. Hers is one of 11 total. ETFs are popular investments that trade like stocks. They're now a $7.7 trillion industry, and these new funds will track the price of the world's best-known cryptocurrency. I do think that Bitcoin is the biggest idea out there. Wood argues this digital currency will revolutionize the way we do business, and she's also a true believer. Her firm bought its first Bitcoin in 2015 for about $250. Today, it's trading above $43,000. Because buying actual cryptocurrency is kind of complicated, this new option is bound to boost crypto's popularity, Wood says. The ETF has been battle-tested and is a vehicle that actually investors love. But not everyone is convinced, including several members of the Securities and Exchange Commission, the regulators that okayed these new investments. This was a split decision. Critics note many cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile. We fear many investors are going to end up losing money and being harmed here. Dennis Kelleher is the president and CEO of Better Markets. That's a nonprofit based in Washington that focuses on consumer protection. Kelleher fears these new funds will give mom-and-pop investors a false sense of comfort because they're already familiar with other kinds of ETFs, and millions of them are already customers of, or at least know of, some of the big money managers who have gotten in on the game, including Fidelity and BlackRock. Kelleher also notes the world of crypto has a reputation for being kind of scammy. The Securities and Exchange Commission has sued dozens of crypto companies and investors and promoters. The SEC in approving this ETF is like knowing there's a very high crime area with no cops on the beat. And despite that, Kelleher says, they've authorized companies to send buses to drop off people with wallets and lots of jewelry showing at midnight on those very same streets. SEC Chair Gary Gensler did vote to approve these new investments, but he seems to have done so reluctantly. A recent court decision forced his hand. He's repeatedly warned investors of the, quote, myriad risks associated with Bitcoin and crypto securities, most recently on CNBC on Friday. It's rife with conflicts. It's rife with fraud and abuse. And that's why on the first day these new investments started trading on the Nasdaq and the New York Stock Exchange, one of the largest investment managers in the world announced it's steering clear of them. Vanguard said they're not a building block of a well-balanced long-term investment portfolio, and it won't make Bitcoin ETFs available to its tens of millions of customers. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. You know, that feeling of muscle soreness a day or so after you've done a tough workout. Now imagine that, but much more. That's what some people with long COVID face after they exercise. And as NPR's Will Stone reports, new research is giving scientists a clearer picture of what may be going on. Hit the gym, get back in shape. It's advice many patients with long COVID have heard. David Petrino says this notion that exercise is medicine has proven difficult to dispel in the broader medical community. 
it is very clear that this is not a typical response to exercise. They feel incredibly unwell. They become bedbound. Their whole system feels as though they've been poisoned. Petrino runs a long COVID clinic at Mount Sinai in New York, where he sees what's known as post-exertional malaise. It's a hallmark of long COVID and similar complex illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome. Symptoms are typically extreme muscle pain, fatigue, and brain fog that last days, even a week after physical activity. But when they complain, Petrino says so often patients aren't taken seriously. Their lived experience is not being listened to or validated. That's why he says new research from the Netherlands is important because it shows clear evidence of a biological basis for their symptoms. Scientists there compared 25 people with long COVID to those who'd had COVID and fully recovered. Both groups did an exercise test on a stationary bike that lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. The research team drew blood and took muscle biopsies from their legs before and after the exercise. Braden Charlton is at Vrij University in Amsterdam and one of the study's authors. This is a very real disease and we see this at basically every parameter that we measure. After exercising, the consequences to the muscle were dramatic. Charlton says multiple tests revealed the mitochondria, the body's cellular power plants, are compromised, meaning their capacity to take up oxygen and produce energy is impaired. What we saw immediately, and it's very profound, is that their mitochondria don't function in a healthy way. Charlton says they also found atrophy and immense amounts of cell death in the muscle tissue. There is a lot more muscle breakdown than we would expect to happen following the exercise. Taken together, the results show widespread abnormalities that help explain patients' severe reaction to physical activity. I think it's a very strong study, and the messages are striking. That's Akiko Iwasaki, a scientist at Yale University who's studying long COVID. There is a real problem in converting oxygen into energy in these people, and literally they can't recharge their battery. The deep dive into muscles also turned up tiny blood clots. They were elevated in those with symptoms, and that only got worse with exercise. The clots were found inside the muscle, not in the blood vessels. That was a surprise to Rizia Pretorius at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. That means that the microclots can actually have traveled through the damaged vasculature into the muscle. And that is huge because if it can happen to muscle, then it can happen to the brain and any other organ. And if the linings of the blood vessels are really that compromised, she says it would also cause problems with the mitochondria. More work needs to be done on these different lines of evidence. In the meantime, David Petrino at Mount Sinai says doctors need to take these findings very seriously. We need to step out of this erroneous mindset of, well, no pain, no gain. No, post-exertional malaise is different. He says maybe with this new evidence, more people will listen. Will Stone, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. Heavy rain is falling in Boston. That is water pouring from one of the gutters outside our WBUR studio on Com Ave. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyes says rain is expected to end this morning. 
Areas of rain, gusty wind through mid to late morning, then the back edge comes in and the sun breaks out. Until then, pockets of wind damage with gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour, especially at the coast, gusts to 60 on Cape Cod. Rain totals one to two inches for many with localized flooding. Coastal concerns too with high tide approaching. Expect widespread minor to moderate coastal flooding through mid-afternoon. Highs well into the 50s will drop into the 40s for the second half of the day, around 40 tomorrow and then only in the low 30s Monday. It is 46 degrees in Boston at 839. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com and Brookline Booksmith. Alex Michaelides and Karen Schiffman discuss Michaelides' new novel, The Fury, on January 17th. BrooklineBooksmith.com. Recently on Wait, Wait, we learned where panelist Shantira Jackson perches on the economic ladder. Do you have a Tesla? No, I'm a comedian. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. If you have a Tesla, please do not take your hands off the wheel when you listen to this week's show with special guest Jason Isbell, even though Elon says you can. That's the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. A story about a British postal scandal has been making international headlines. Hundreds of postal workers were wrongly prosecuted between 1999 and 2015. The story has come to light because of a new TV drama that just aired in the U.K., Mr. Bates versus the Post Office stars Toby Jones and details how Postal workers were accused of stealing money when computer software called Horizon was to blame. The computer system post office spent an arm and a leg on is faulty. No one else has ever reported any problems with Horizon. No one. You're responsible for the loss. I haven't got that money, and I don't know where it's gone. The TV show and the true plight of the postal workers has caused outrage among the British public and political backlash. Lee Castleton is a former post office manager. Nick Wallace is an investigative journalist who wrote the book, The Great Post Office Scandal. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thanks for having us. Hi. Mr. Castleton, what's it been like to see your story and those of others on a hit TV show? (laughs) It's very, very odd. (laughs) It's very humbling. And it kind of reinvigorates you and enthusiasm to get to the end of this and just enjoying the moment, really, and trying to uh, put everything into the right place. Mr. Wallace, I gather one of the reasons the scandal has hit the British public so hard is, of course, firstly, a great many people were wronged. And also, the post office has been a pretty trusted institution, hasn't it? 
Absolutely. And that's why so many sub postmasters went into business with the post office. They opened a retail premises. They agreed to allow a post office counter to be installed in their premises. And they thought they were dealing with a fair and equitable partner that had been around for centuries and who would treat them fairly. They had responsibility for handling public money. But when this horrendous IT system was rolled out, which literally could not add up properly, we've discovered this from the public inquiry that's been going on, the cash accounting program was fundamentally broken. It created holes in sub-postmasters' accounts. And instead of properly investigating that IT, the post office decided to use its investigatory and prosecutory powers to take innocent people to court. And hundreds of people, innocent people, were given criminal convictions as a result of the post office relying on faulty IT evidence. Mr. Castleton, you were accused of stealing money from the post office, which was not the case. What did you and your family go through? Oh, it's probably the most terrible journeys that anyone could take. And the victims, throughout all the victims, the story is so similar. The post office were just not interested in the human side. It took me to bankruptcy. We lost everything. My wife suffered from anxiety that led to um, epilepsy. And my daughter terribly suffered. Um, she was bullied as well as my son. They were both bullied at school, which led to my daughter being very anxious and eventually an eating disorder, which took 10 years for her to start to recover from. And, and this has been 20 years for me. What did people say when you said, but I'm innocent? People would say that I was a thief, that um, they'd been told by the post office. Everyone trusted the post office. It's owned by the government. And people would say that I'd taken pensions from old people. Mr. Wallace, why did it take so long for the post office to discover the problem and recognize they were at fault? The post office didn't discover the problem. The post office went into denial mode to a terrifying degree. When it became apparent in 2013 to the board level members of the executive team, that it may have been responsible for using faulty IT evidence to put innocent people in prison, rather than raising their hands and telling Parliament and telling the campaign groups, which had been springing up over the course of the previous decade, they decided to hide that evidence. And successive executives denied publicly to the media and to Parliament that they had been responsible for any miscarriages of justice. And it wasn't until Lee the lead campaigner Alan Bates and many hundreds more banded together to get litigation funding to take on the post office at the High Court that it was forced by a High Court judge after an extremely aggressive litigation in which the post office attempted to remove the judge when they didn't like the way that he was thinking on this subject. The post office caved, settled and handed over millions of pounds in compensation. There are some people who went to prison there are some people who, uh, who didn't survive, aren't there? More than 200 people were given custodial sentences. More than 900 people were given criminal convictions. There were people who told me that they thought in their darkest moment of taking their own lives as if it would be less painful and an easier thing to do than have to wake up and face their communities every day with this cloud of suspicion and their families as well. Families were broken apart. We know of four confirmed suicides. But these sub-postmasters who've been struggling to get their stories heard have now got the world's media wanting to talk to them. And they have done everything possible to keep going, to agree to every single interview opportunity that comes their way, just so they can keep 
hammering the story, going to the well one more time, re-traumatizing themselves in order to be able to talk about what happened to them in the hope they might get justice. Mr. Castleton, Prime Minister Sunak says he wants to make this right. What would that be for you? Well, the um, original case in the High Court, it still stands against me. That would be the first step. And then we need to look at all the, um, the convictions to be removed and then move on to compensation. Everyone needs to be fully and fairly compensated. And then finally, accountability. You know, this is a company that's wholly owned by the government and there's never been anyone removed from their employment. There's never been anybody taken to court, prosecuted or um, ever punished. And in order to draw a line under all of this, we need those steps to take place. Otherwise, you just don't get closure. For all you've been through, what would you like us to know? What would you like us to bear in mind? Oh, gosh. The humanity of it, really. Nobody should have to fight this hard. The group have pulled up every single tree, they've fought every corner with no money, with nothing but just belief in justice. It's had terrible effects throughout families. You know, I, I equate it to holding a dry handful of sand and just watching every grain fall between your fingers. And you have no power no power to stop it, just nothing. And I just wish that people would realize that should never happen to anybody. Lee Castleton managed a post office in the town of Bridlington. Nick Wallace is an investigative journalist. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of flowers, bees, picnics, and love of family in Jonathan Glazer's new film, The Zone of Interest. There is also smoke in the sky, fire licking at the clouds, ash floating down, and roars from the crematorium of the concentration camp just beyond the walls of the family's home and gardens. The Zone of Interest is based on the family life of Rudolf Hoss, one of the architects of Hitler's attempt to exterminate all Jews in Europe. It is based on Martin Amos's 2014 novel. It's a British entry for Best International Feature Film for this year's Oscars and was a Grand Prix winner at Cannes. Christian Friedel plays Rudolf. Sandra Huller is his wife, Hedwig, and she and director Jonathan Glazer join us now. I want to thank you both very much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Let me ask you both, um, and maybe for Americans, we need to explain this isn't Hitler's deputy, Rudolf Hess, but Rudolf Haas, who was uh, the commandant at Auschwitz. This sounds obscene, but he and his family like their life at the camp there, don't they? They seem to. But yeah, they, they established themselves um, in a house and they had a big garden because uh, Hedwig Hoss, who Sandra portrays, um, uh, had, a, had a love for, for gardening and for plants. And so she built this sort of paradise garden, which shared a wall with the concentration camp. Sandra Huller, in, a, in, in an early scene, packages arrived, clothing mostly, fur coat, 
at one point that Hedwig unwraps and distributes. Uh, those aren't from Amazon, are they? No, these are clothes and items, um, belongings of people who were killed or are to be killed in the camp next door. These things were taken away from them and the family has uh, took them for themselves. And sometimes Hedwig has created a sort of uh, fake generosity by giving them to the people who worked in the house. Mm. How do you give life to this character, Hedwig? What, what do you want people to notice? Because on the one hand, she's a very fierce and determined mother who loves her children, isn't she? Well, I don't think so. I think even her children are also things or um, pieces that need to be collected to form a picture of the perfect family. Mm -hmm. My idea or my strong feeling was that if you live a life like this and if you if you contribute to the death of millions of people, you cannot love your children at the same time. It just for me, I, I didn't know how to how to find that place inside of me. Um, mm. So we decided together, it was not only my decision, but we decided together that this sort of sentiment doesn't exist. Jonathan Glazer, um, we don't, as a rule, see the horrors beyond the walls, but we do see somebody burying ashes. We hear howls. What was your technique as a director? Um, well, the, the horrors of life over the wall were going to be represented uh, sonically. You know, in other words, something that we couldn't see, but we could certainly hear. I think those images anyway are sort of seared into our, um, into our minds anyway. And so it seemed pointless to try and uh, recreate them or reenact them. Yes, I think, Jonathan, please tell me when I'm wrong, but it was important for us to know that uh, Hedwig Hörs is not somebody who's uh, on this side of the wall and doesn't know what's going on. We know, and this, this information was really important to me, we know that she has been in the camp and she saw everything that was going on there. So um, uh, She has a very important line in the film, which is a line we actually found in the vaults at, uh, in the archives of Auschwitz um, as part of a testimony given by a, a prisoner who survived, mm -hmm. who worked in the house. And actually the line that, she, that Sandra says in the film to one of the girls who works in the house, one of the local Polish girls who works in her house, spitefully, she says, um, if I wanted to, my husband could spread your ashes on the fields of the beacher. In that single line, we understand everything she knows. Was it difficult emotionally for both of you, for the entire crew to work on this film? Or after all, you're professionals. Is it just another movie? You're right, you're right to say that. It's, there, is a, um, there are two things going on. One is um, the enormous weight of, of responsibility and challenge, you know, as a human being to, to where you are and what you're trying to achieve. And on the other hand, you have your practice. Um, your craft, you know, and your craft, I, for me anyway, the craft was something which, um, you know, which you immerse yourself in to just get through what you need to achieve that day. And of course, sometimes you're untroubled by anything else going on around you in terms of um, the significance of factor of the site you're on. And, and other days it stops you in your tracks and you remember where you are. How was it for you, Miss Hilder? Um, I agree. It's somewhat the same. And it, it says at the same time, I would always say that 
Oh, I felt that everything that could have been difficult or anything or challenging was always put into perspective through the space that we were in because none of these things mattered at all. So whenever something felt hard or anything, it was always very clear that it's nothing um, compared to the things that happened there before. But definitely it's not just another film. No, not at all. I think I will never forget the work on this. Sandra Huller, I feel the need to ask you a question. You were born in East Germany. East Germans didn't learn about the Holocaust the way West Germans did. Would that be fair to say? No, I don't agree. Um, when I grew up, uh, the the atrocities of the camps and what the fascists did were a big topic in school. So be, I think... I, I remember that uh, we saw very cruel pictures of that time. So there was, I think there was nothing really kept from us or history changed in, 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 in some way. I don't think so. If you want to speak about the political situation right now in Germany, that's a problem for all of Germany. That's not an Eastern German problem. Well, could I get you to talk about that a little? Do you, do you have concerns about the political atmosphere in Germany at the moment? I do, and it's a very dangerous moment that we're living in right now. And um, maybe you read it on the papers. Some uh, information came out that uh, one of the parties in Germany called AfD uh, made actual plans to deport um, people from the country uh, to make it clean again. So there is, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really dangerous moment. Um, there's nothing more to say. We need to act against this. That's all I can say. Yeah. Sandra Huller and uh, Jonathan Glazer, their new film, The Zone of Interest. Thank you both very much for being with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Weekend edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy, Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. Thanks for joining us today here on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 9 o'clock as Weekend Edition Saturday continues. Working on your fitness? Great. Join us at City Space for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip hop and house music. That's Monday, January 29th at City Space. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. WBUR supporters include BU's Sargent College. Start your medical career with an MS in human physiology. Priority deadline, January 15th. 
bu.edu slash sergeant. Voters in Taiwan go to the polls to elect a new president and legislature on Saturday. Whoever wins control of the self-governed island will have to navigate a difficult path forward as tensions with China rise. I'm Andrew Limbong, NPR's On the Ground with results from one of Taiwan's most consequential elections. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. The last weekend before the Iowa Republican presidential caucuses and Donald Trump seems the force to be reckoned with, even among those who say they'll vote for someone else. My lean towards DeSantis is more just a, I'm not sure that the media and the country would allow Trump to do what he wants to do, where DeSantis, I think, might have a better chance of getting things done. And later, Eric Deggins preempts the Emmys with his Deggies. We're so honored. Another BAFO year for Obamacare signups. And people in Pittsburgh worry about U.S. Steel leaving town. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, January 13, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. The U.S. has carried out another strike against Houthi militants in Yemen. The U.S. military says this latest attack targeted a radar site threatening commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The attack follows Thursday's strikes by the U.S. and the U.K. Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh says the strikes are necessary given Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea since November. We feel we were very successful in disrupting many of the capabilities that they've been using to launch at uh, commercial vessels who are transiting the Red Sea. The Houthis say their Red Sea attacks on civilian cargo ships are in retaliation for the war in Gaza. A Houthi spokesman has told Reuters that the uh, strikes have been ineffective. The group has pledged to respond, raising fears of a wider conflict. The ruling party candidate for president of Taiwan is celebrating his election victory. Voters swept Lai Qingda into the president's office despite threats from China, which claims sovereignty over Taiwan. More Palestinians have been told to leave their homes and shelters in central Gaza, where fighting between Israeli soldiers and Hamas militants has intensified. The latest evacuation orders come as another telecommunications blackout hit Gaza. Here's NPR's Kerry Khan reporting. According to UN officials, more than 18,000 people were given new evacuation orders. Israel's military says it is moving civilians for their safety. The UN Human Rights Office criticized, quote, forcing civilians to relocate into areas where military actions continue. According to Palestinian health officials, more than 150 Palestinians were killed in the past 24 hours due to Israeli airstrikes. The known death toll in Gaza now tops 23,000. About 1,200 people were killed in southern Israel following the attack by Hamas on October 7th. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. House conservatives want Speaker Mike Johnson to walk away from a deal he made with Democrats setting government funding levels. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports this comes just with uh, just one week until a deadline to avoid a partial government shutdown. 
Speaker Johnson met Friday with conservative and moderate Republicans to discuss legislation to fund federal agencies through the rest of this fiscal year. Last weekend, he announced a bipartisan deal that largely stuck to levels based on an agreement former Speaker McCarthy made with President Biden last year. In the face of blowback from many on the right, Johnson says he's sticking with the deal. Our top line agreement remains. We are getting our next steps together and we are working toward a robust appropriations process. Lawmakers expect another short-term funding bill will be needed to avoid a partial shutdown. The speaker declined to say whether he would back one, but Senate Democrats started the process to vote on a stopgap next week. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The rain will begin to wind down this morning, but flooding is still a threat along rivers, streams, and along the coast. National Weather Service meteorologist Tori Dooley cautions roads with poor drainage could flood as well. We've had some pretty significant rain throughout this week, and with another one to two inches of rain falling throughout the overnight hours, any rivers that remain swollen are still in flood stage are expected to rise over the next day and then slowly recede as we start to head into early next week. Dooley says during high tide, between noon and 1, Boston is projected to be about a foot above flood stage. Trouble spots such as Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester could be flooded. The Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency reports the number of power outages across the state dropped from 5,000 down to 2,500 in the last hour. 30 flights have been delayed at Logan Airport this morning. The website FlightAware also is reporting almost 50 cancellations. The Steamship Authority is unable to run its ferries between Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket because of gusting winds. New Hampshire Democrats and independents are being asked to switch party affiliations so they can vote against former President Donald Trump in the state's Republican primary in two weeks. WBUR's Anthony Brooks tells WBUR's Radio Boston that a super PAC is behind the effort. According to the New Hampshire Secretary of State office, nearly 4,000 New Hampshire Democrat Democratic voters changed their party affiliation, and that's a possible indication that they plan to participate in the Republican primary. Recent polls in New Hampshire showed former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley within striking distance of Trump, who is in the lead. Governor Healy is among the political leaders kicking off a celebration for eighth graders from every city and town in Massachusetts. The students will be serving as ambassadors from the communities this year. They'll focus on civil engagement. The event this morning at the JFK Presidential Library is part of the nonprofit Project 351. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions. Learn more at FJC.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us. William Lye, the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, has been elected president of the self-ruled Democratic Island of Taiwan. The outcome of the election is key for Taiwan's relationship with the U.S. and China, of course, which wants to control Taiwan through military force if necessary. 
NPR's Emily Fang is in Taipei at DPP Party Headquarters. Emily, thanks for being with us. Hey, Scott. What's the significance of a lie victory? Well, this was a clear victory for him. It was a very close one, and he won largely by appealing to this pro-Taiwan, anti-China base of voters. And because he won, that means Taiwan stands towards China and also towards the U.S., which is the island's most important security guarantor, will largely stay the same. Now, Lai comes from the political establishment. He's actually currently the vice president. And he's from the DPP, which is this party that's flirted with the idea of formally declaring Taiwan as an independent country. He's also helped Taiwan branch out internationally, building up these diplomatic partnerships, even though most of the world does not formally recognize Taiwan as a nation. And therefore, Beijing has made no secret that it hates Lai. His running mate, Bi Kim Shao, who which is uh, Taiwan's next vice president, has already been sanctioned by China. And Beijing has said repeatedly, voting for Lai would be choosing war with China. However, so far, China's been pretty restrained in its rhetoric about the Taiwan elections, and they've no indication they want to escalate tensions at this stage. Uh, Lai from Taiwan just spoke to the press, and he committed himself to maintaining the status quo on cross-strait relations while also pursuing dialogue with China. He said he had responsibility to maintain peace in the Taiwan Strait, but he would also use exchanges to replace obstructionism, use dialogue instead of confrontation, and confidently pursue cooperation with China, but he was determined to safeguard Taiwan from threats and intimidation from Beijing. Emily, you mentioned the closeness of the margin. What kind of mandate does Mr. Lai have? He doesn't have a very clear one because Taiwan's system is a first-past-the-post system, meaning you do not need a majority to win as president. And Lai got only about 40 percent of the popular vote, so that diminishes his authority a bit. His party, the DPP, has just secured a historic third term in the president's office. This has not happened before in Taiwan's admittedly very short democratic history. But the DPP does not have a majority in the legislature anymore. So it's going to have to negotiate with two other opposition parties, which made these big legislative gains. And that means gridlock for the next four years. The other two parties could very easily hold up policies that Lai's office proposes on, say, national defense or other budget priorities, introducing delays in policies that Taiwan might not have when it comes to deterring China. Emily, what, uh, what can you foresee after Mr. Lai takes office? Well, he's coming into office in a highly divided Taiwanese society. They're divided along lines of identity, whether they feel more Taiwanese or if they still feel culturally Chinese, and also divided along perspectives about how to best deter China. But the biggest priority for him is going to still be domestic, you know, the bread and butter issues that voters voted on, like the economy and, and housing prices, familiar probably for most American voters. Also, Lai has a really long lame duck period coming up. He's not going to be sworn in as the new president until late May. So there's a lot that can happen before then. For example, China could, in theory, escalate its intimidation of Taiwan by cutting off more trade with the island, by ramping up its now daily military saber rattling, which it does by flying its fighter jets and sailing Navy boats around the island. But I also want to end on a more positive note, which is this is only Taiwan's eighth ever direct presidential election. I watched voting happen. I watched the votes being counted publicly. It was carried out smoothly, transparently, and quickly. People who lost conceded gracefully, vowing to work with Lai. About 75% of people turned out. So you have a very engaged population here who cares about democracy, even if they don't always agree with one another. 
NPR's Emily Fang uh, speaking with us from DPP Party Headquarters in Taipei. Emily, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. Just two days to go before Iowa's first in the nation caucuses. The state is getting pummeled with a powerful winter storm, and it'll be bitterly cold on Monday. NPR's Sarah McCammon joins us now, not from Iowa, which is apparently not easy to get to. Sarah, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you know, Scott, I was supposed to be in Iowa yesterday. I've almost lost count of how many times we had to change travel plans because of the weather, and that's affecting everybody who is trying to campaign or cover this caucus or listen to candidates. You know, cold weather is nothing new in Iowa this time of year. I lived there for several years, but this is cold even for Iowa, and the snow and heavy winds have not been helping. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley had to cancel three in-person events yesterday. She turned those into teletown halls instead, and she said she really hopes her Iowa supporters will come out on Monday. Please wear layers of clothes just in case they're aligned so that you are staying safe. And please go in there and know that you are setting the tone for the country. And it's not just Nikki Haley. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis also postponed some events yesterday because of the weather. Former President Trump is doing a mix of tele-rallies and in-person events. Vivek Ramaswamy's campaign said he was continuing as planned, but earlier this week he also had to cancel some events. And that, Scott, was after he criticized Haley for doing so and implied that canceling events because of severe weather was weak. This winter storm, though, is not weak, and it's something candidates and everybody else has to think about. Sarah, Midwesterners are up to it, okay? Uh, <laughs> what what could this storm mean for caucus night on Monday? Well, we like to think so. I still think of myself as one. Remember, caucuses are held in person at a specific time. There's usually no way to absentee vote. And so because caucus night is likely to be sub-zero weather across much of the state, it's very likely that some voters who would otherwise come just will not want to brave the cold or won't be able to. You know, this system has gotten its share of criticism for being tailored to people who have jobs and family situations that allow them to caucus at night, and in many cases who are physically able to do so even in winter weather. So which candidate all of this helps is anybody's guess, Scott. I've heard a few different theories about that. Evangelical leader Bob Vanderplotz, who's endorsed DeSantis, says he thinks it will help DeSantis. His theory is that Trump supporters might look at the polls and just stay home. If they believe he's winning by 30 points, yeah, maybe I may just watch the victory speech on TV versus spending two hours uh, in the bitter cold and trying to have a debate with my neighbors. That said, Trump's base is known for its enthusiasm and loyalty, and Trump is just so far ahead in the polls, it's hard to envision an outcome where he's not the winner because of this. The bigger question, I think, is which candidate not named Trump can persuade enough of their supporters to turn out on Monday and give them second place. What are the candidates saying as they make their final appeals? You know, this really appears to be a fight for second place between DeSantis and Haley. Trump's legal battles have kept him mostly out of Iowa in recent days, but it really doesn't seem to matter for him. His supporters think he's being unfairly targeted and they've rallied around him. But Haley has been gaining ground in some recent polls, and she's trying to build on that. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's decision to drop out this week might help her. He has not endorsed anyone, but both Haley and Christie are seen as appealing to more moderate Republicans. And Haley may be poised to pick up some of his supporters in New Hampshire, where she's been polling within single digits of Trump. Because even though we're heading to Iowa, or at least I hope I'm getting there soon, uh, for the caucuses, Everyone knows that the first primary in New Hampshire is not far behind. 
NPR Sarah McCammon from an undisclosed location. And in, in, I hope there's a Cinnabon stand, <laughs> whatever airport you wind up in, Sarah. There's at least coffee. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Federal prosecutors say they will seek the death penalty for a white supremacist who murdered 10 black people at a Buffalo, New York supermarket in 2022. Here's member station WBFO's Emily Watkins. Friday's decision from the Department of Justice to seek the death penalty means that gunman Peyton Gendron will face trials in federal court. He avoided trial in his state case by pleading guilty to 25 charges, a move outside attorneys believe was likely made in hopes that the DOJ would not seek the death penalty. But the DOJ never promised that. Zanetta Everhart is the mother of Zaire Goodman, one of the three people who was shot but survived. Outside of federal court Friday, she said she is satisfied with the DOJ's decision. For me, I believe in the greater good of that, right? There should be a trial. The country should see what happened that day. They should know what led up to that, right? Um, They should hear all about the manifesto and the guns that he used and modified. Gendron previously pleaded not guilty to 27 federal counts against him. He could still plead guilty, avoiding a criminal trial, but a sentencing trial would still be held where a jury would have to be unanimous to send him to death row. New York State abolished the death penalty for state-level cases 20 years ago, but the Justice Department had the ability to seek the death penalty for Gendron's federal hate crimes case. This is the first time President Biden's Justice Department has authorized a new pursuit of the death penalty. Terrence Connors, an attorney for some of the families, acknowledged relatives are split on whether federal prosecutors should seek the death penalty. Several of them felt that life in prison was the appropriate sentence, you know, let him stay there and and, uh, experience that. And there were others that thought the maximum punishment was warranted in this case. And if not in this case, in what case? Attorney Connors says he expects the case to go to trial by the end of the year at the earliest. Everhart said no matter when the trial happens, it won't fully provide closure. I don't think that emotion will ever die. Um, There has not been a day since 514 that I haven't thought about it. Court was adjourned until next month, when the trial date will be set. For NPR News, I'm Emily Watkins in Buffalo. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in about 15 minutes, you'll hear about a mysterious note discovered in an 1880s bustle dress. That and more ahead on Weekend Edition. And Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me comes your way at 10 o'clock here on WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World Experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. It is 49 degrees in Boston. A coastal flood warning is in effect starting at 10 a.m. Rain around tapering off this morning, a windy Saturday, and highs today reaching the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. 
I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. House Speaker Mike Johnson is standing by a $1.6 trillion bipartisan spending deal in the face of calls by hardliners in his party to scrap it. They're threatening a government shutdown next week if he doesn't throw out the deal. Much of the country is being hammered by winter weather this weekend. Governors from New York to Louisiana have declared states of emergency. Tens of thousands of customers are without power in several states that border the Great Lakes. And forecasters are warning of near record cold in Kansas City tonight, where the Chiefs are hosting the Miami Dolphins in their NFL playoff game. The playoffs are kicking off this weekend. The early game pits Cleveland against Houston. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, offering travelers an opportunity to voyage aboard Cunard's Queen Elizabeth to Alaska. Guests can explore ports and scenic cruising through Glacier Bay National Park with locally sourced cuisine. More at cunard.com. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The U.S. military struck again at a target in Yemen it said was being used to attack commercial ships in the Red Sea. This follows earlier strikes that hit dozens of targets on Friday. The White House says the airstrikes on the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels are not intended to spark a wider war in the region. But tensions remain high, with the U.S. striving to limit interference from Iran. As Israel's war against Hamas approaches 100 days, NPR's Peter Kenyon is following all this from Istanbul. Peter, thanks for being with us. Hi, Scott. Why the strikes now in this Red Sea area? Well, the airstrikes followed a number of warnings uh, from President Joe Biden, the U.S. Central Command, uh, warning that these Houthi attacks on commercial ships transiting the Red Sea had to stop. Uh, And the airstrikes have done considerable damage, uh, the latest targeted uh, Houthi radar facility. But so far, the strikes do not appear to have deterred the Houthis. Their public response, at least, has been to declare that their attacks will continue. How does U.S. involvement change the situation in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf? Well, the U.S. has long maintained a presence in the Gulf and has bases in the region, of course. Uh, Washington sent warships to the area in an effort to deter others from joining this conflict uh, because, of course, a major concern is not to let this escalate into a wider regional fight. That's a risk the West is keen to avoid. Uh, And we should point out that the Houthis say the main reason for these attacks on commercial shipping is to show support for Hamas and Hezbollah, the Iran proxy militias that have been targeted by the Israeli military ever since Hamas's deadly raid on October 7th. That attack killed some 1,200 people, mainly civilians, and resulted in hundreds of hostages being taken. Peter, there were massive protests Friday in Yemen uh, opposing the strikes against the Houthis. Might the Houthis now feel galvanized and continue attacks on shipping? Well, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, The Houthis appear to have the support of a very vocal segment of the population in Yemen, at the very least. Uh, Certainly, Iran has made clear it intends to keep up its support for the Houthis, which it sees as part of what it likes to call the axis of resistance. Uh, That's countries, militias, state and non-state actors that see themselves as countering U.S. and Israeli influence in the region. Uh, I was in Yemen on a reporting trip a number of years ago, uh, before the Houthis became such a major presence in the country. Uh, Back then, 
then they were concentrated in the northwest up near the border with Saudi Arabia. I remember a very long drive from the capital to see a meeting they were having. It was in a local hotel. Uh, they all filed in and they uh, carefully lined up at the cloakroom. Each one checked his rifle at the door you know, with the clerk before heading into the meeting. Uh, this was probably 2007 or so. Back then, in the rest of Yemen, certainly in the capital, there was not very many people at all worried about the Houthis. Uh, there have been some big changes since then, of course. What are the ripple effects of cargo ships avoiding the Red Sea? Well, it's an important commercial route, and a number of major firms are now avoiding it. Uh, in the last day, in fact, carmakers Tesla and Volvo both announced they're suspending some of their production in Europe because of a shortage of components due to the attacks on ships in the Red Sea. Uh, the shipping giant Maersk and others have made it clear they're prepared to absorb the higher costs and the extra time it takes to send their ships around South Africa. And Maersk said last month that it believes this situation could continue for several months. And here's Peter Kenyon. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. The Affordable Care Act's health insurance marketplace will hit record high for signups this year, topping last year's record high. That's according to an analysis from the Kaiser Family Foundation. Cynthia Cox is a Family Foundation vice president and director of the program on the ACA. She joins us now from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Let's begin with the numbers. What makes this a record year on the ACA exchanges? Yeah, so just in the last few years, the ACA marketplaces have almost doubled in size. So in 2020, there were about 11 million people signed up for ACA marketplace coverage. Now we're at over 20 million people for 2024, and the open enrollment period still has a few more days left, so I wouldn't be surprised if that number gets even higher. And, and what do you think is driving all the signups? The Affordable Care Act always had subsidies to make health insurance more affordable for people who were buying their own insurance on these marketplaces. But in the wake of the pandemic and then also with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, there were even more generous subsidies on the market. And I think more and more people are finding out about this additional help. And, you know, there's also, um, you know, people still had Medicaid coverage during the pandemic who may not technically be eligible for it anymore. 14 million people have been disenrolled from Medicaid since April of last year. Now, some of those people are gonna get Medicaid again. Some of them are gonna get coverage through work, but for those who cannot get coverage through work or Medicaid, then, that's exactly why the ACA marketplace exists. It's a place for people to go who can't get coverage through other means. And so the subsidies are available for people. And, you know, especially if you're low income and you're transitioning off of Medicaid, then chances are you could probably get free or, or very low cost private insurance through the ACA marketplace. Is the coverage that, that people are receiving the kind of insurance, quality insurance President Obama promised? So for some people, they can get, like, especially if you're, if you're really low income, you can get insurance on the ACA marketplaces probably for free, either, I mean, maybe $0 a month, $1 or $2 a month for a premium, and your deductible could be very low. It could be less than $100 a year. If you're middle income, um, there's a sliding scale. So then for more middle income people, they might have to pay a few hundred dollars a month for health insurance coverage. They might have a deductible of a few thousand dollars. 
So it really, I think, is going to depend on the person. Um, but, but I think overall, what we're seeing is that many, many more people are finding this to be a good value for them than, than had been the case a few years ago. President Trump, of course, has, has repeated his vow to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Do these numbers uh, suggest that the law is now so well established it would be difficult to repeal? The Affordable Care Act that President Trump and Republicans in Congress in 2017 were trying to repeal, I think it was a different situation, almost a different law. At the time, you know, the marketplaces were really struggling. There was wall-to-wall -wall news coverage about insurance companies leaving the market, saying there was no way to be profitable in this market. There were even concerns that some parts of the country might not have any health insurers offering, which would make, basically make the market implode in those parts of the country. There was a lot of difficulty in the early rollout of the ACA, but what we've seen since then is that the markets have not just stabilized, but they've become profitable for insurers. We're seeing more and more companies entering into the market. We're seeing more and more people sign up for this coverage. So I think it's just, you know, it's such a different situation than it was a few years ago when uh, we were talking about repeal and replace then. Are, are there fixes that you would like nevertheless to see made? Well, you know, I, I, I don't make policy recommendations. We're a nonpartisan organization, but one of the things that the Affordable Care Act um, did was make this coverage more affordable for individuals through subsidies, but the raw premiums are still really expensive. So that means taxpayers are paying a lot of money to, to cover those costs. And so there's probably more that can be done to address the underlying reasons why health insurance is so expensive in the United States. And, you know, there's also challenges that we have seen with our surveying of people who are signing up on this market. Sometimes they have a difficult time navigating the sign-up process, and also a difficult time actually using their health care. You know, there certainly is still room for improvement, but overall, I would say that the marketplaces are in a much more stable and solid situation than they were several years ago. Cynthia Cox of the Kaiser Family Foundation, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. The 75th Emmy Awards, set to air Monday night on NBC after months of delays because of strikes. NPR's TV critic Eric Degen says these honors even when they are on schedule, don't always pick the most deserving winners. So he's come up with the Deggies, his own awards, which he's unveiled in a story on NPR.org and joins us now. Eric, thanks for being with us. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just hoping that somebody like the Golden Globes buys this idea off of me at some point. But We, we, we should note, uh, the, the delay in airing the Emmys means there's some confusion about what's actually up to be honored, right? Yeah, you know, even though the Emmy ceremony is delayed from September when it usually happens, they didn't delay the deadlines for entries or voting. So Monday ceremony is going to honor shows that aired most of their season before May 31st, 2023. So, mm -hmm. for example, they're honoring the first season of FX's The Bear instead of the second season, which was released in June 2023. And presumably won these Golden Globe Awards. So <laughs> you got that, everybody? It's tough to track. Ah, but the Deggies are, are, are beyond that, right? That's right. Well, see, that's the benefit of creating your own contest. I'd prefer to say <laughs> that I creatively break the rules when necessary. So so if you think about, for it's example- It's art, damn it. It's art, it, yes. Exactly. So if you think about the category of uh, best drama series, for example, there's a lot of cool nominees there, including Netflix's The Crown, HBO's House of the Dragon, and Showtime's Yellow Jackets. 
Uh, you do the honors. And now, wait, wait, hold on. Let me look for an envelope or something here. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait. I, I, oh, good. Okay. And the decky goes to Succession. Now, I know it's probably tiring for some people to keep hearing about this show seven months after its finale, but this series about the struggles behind a family-owned media corporation, it artfully captured what makes being in a family so difficult alongside all these shifts in media. And I mean, Succession managed the finale to stay true to the series, but surprised everybody in the audience who was trying to guess how it was going to end up. I also predict that this is the show that's going to win Best Drama at the Emmys on Monday night. Okay, uh, comedy series. The nominees include Abbott Elementary on ABC, Apple TV Plus's Ted Lasso, and Hulu's Only Murders in the Building. The Deggy goes to The Bear on FX. But Eric, is The Bear a comedy, really? <laughs> Well, you know, the Emmys let producers and studios decide how a show gets classified. So FX is calling The Bear, which, you know, people may know this complex emotional story about a trained gourmet chef who takes over running his family's Greasy Spoon restaurant in Chicago. I'm going to allow this for the Deggies because it is such an amazing show, especially in the second season, which had these powerful guest performances from people like John Bernthal and Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, she's not eligible for an Emmy until the next contest, but I'm giving her and the show a Deggie now, even though I expect the Emmy Academy to actually give the Best Comedy Award to Ted Lasso on Apple TV+. Time for one more category, Best Supporting Actress in a Drama. The nominees include Jennifer Coolidge and Aubrey Plaza from The White Lotus. But, but, the prestigious Deggie goes to... Three winners, J. Smith Cameron for Succession, Ray Seahorn for Better Call Saul, and Elizabeth Debicki for The Crown. Eric, how do you get three winners? Well, I loved all these performances for different reasons, and I couldn't decide, so I don't have to. <laughs> okay, okay. Good. Smith Even Cameron better. was one of Succession's best supporting players. She played the often exasperated, always surviving corporate executive Jerry. Seahorn has been criminally overlooked by Emmy for years on Better Call Saul, She's and Debicki managed a letter-perfect evocation of Princess Diana on the crown that never looked like a basic impression. Now, I actually suspect that Coolidge is going to win the Emmy here because Emmy voters love her. She gives awesome acceptance speeches, and this may be the last time they can give her one for the White Lotus. Eric, we'll watch the Emmys Monday to see if they have the good wisdom to follow your lead. Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Here's a new album by 21 Savage, his first in more than five years. The British-born rapper is a giant of Atlanta's hip-hop scene. He's calling the album American Dream. A week before he was due to perform at the Grammys, for the first time in 2019, he got arrested by ICE agents. NPR's Rodney Carmichael on 21 Savage's music and life story. That's later today And All Things Considered. You can ask your smart speaker to play your local station by name or tune into, what do they call it? Yeah, the radio.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Bismarck, Omit, Leafage, Buck, Bank. Sarah Rivers Cofield was shopping in 2013 when she noticed a well-kept silk bustle dress from the 1800s and paid $100 for it. When she got home, she discovered the dress had a secret pocket and inside a note with cryptic lines like that. Also, Calgary, Cuba, Ungard, Confute, Duck, Fagan. What did any of those lines mean? Ten years later, she knows the answer. Sarah Rivers Cofield, archaeologist and curator at the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory, joins us. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. Tell us about the dress. Well, I I collect antique clothing as a hobby. I've always been interested in the past. I'm an archaeologist for a living, and I study people by the everyday things that they had. But, you know, in archaeology, we don't typically find clothes that doesn't survive in the archaeological records. So it's what I do in my spare time. I collect antique clothing, and and I, I like that connection to the past. And this particular dress really spoke to me because I didn't have any nice 1880s bustle dresses in my collection. Um, and now it's turned into this huge story, which I had no idea would be the future of this dress. You posted an image of the, the note on your personal blog. What happened? I posted it to my family, and I think somebody in my family posted it on Reddit, and then the code breakers got a hold of it. And somebody did guess all the way back then, 10 years ago, that it was a telegraph code. And when I looked into that, that seemed very likely. That totally fit exactly what the code looked like, why it was all marked off. But then the question becomes finding the right code books to break the code. And the real hero of this story is Wayne Chan, somebody who his hobby is breaking codes. He's at the University of Manitoba, and he's the one who broke this code by tracking down the right telegraph code books. Well, what does Bismarck omit leafage buck bank mean? It's a weather report. I don't know the exact details, but it's something like the temperature, the barometric pressure, the dew point for May 27th, 1888. Um, And there's two sheets and there's lots of cities names. I'm sorry if this sounds naive, but why do you need a code just to say 56 degrees in Bismarck? Well, because sending a telegraph was expensive. So they made these books where one word stands for a whole phrase. So something like leafage might mean 52 degrees and wind south-southwest without having to spell all of that out. But the amount of work it took Wayne to figure that out is just phenomenal. And he had to do really good scholarship to figure that out. Um, And I think some people are like, wow, that's kind of a letdown. But, you know, I'm really thrilled that it was just a weather report. My whole career as an archaeologist is devoted to understanding past lives through all the ephemeral everyday items people left behind as trash or lost possessions. And this is one of those items. We never think anymore about having a weather app on our phone. And until the telegraph came around, people did not have advanced notice of the weather. It's such a fundamental difference in how people live. And so that revelation from this one weather report is something that never occurred to me. It's it's amazing. Sarah Rivers Cofield, archaeologist and curator at the Maryland Archaeological Conservation Laboratory. Thanks so much for being with us. And uh, may all your days be Bismarck omit leafage. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The State Ballot Law Commission will meet next week to consider two challenges, objecting to Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the Republican presidential primary ballot and general election ballot in Massachusetts. A labor attorney and a liberal political group argue the former president should be disqualified because of his role in the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Massachusetts Republican Party warns that removing Trump through legal maneuverings would set a dangerous precedent. A private school in Dorchester is suing the city and a developer to stop an affordable housing project that's planned to be built next door. The Epiphany School is challenging the way the 72-unit development on Center Street was approved by the Boston Planning and Development Agency. The school argues that the development will diminish the value of its property. The heavy rain that's been falling overnight into this morning is expected to taper off this morning. As temperatures today rise into the low 60s, a coastal flood warning takes effect at 10 this morning. The National Weather Service says minor to moderate coastal flooding is possible during high tide between noon and 1 p.m. Boston's projected to be a foot above flood stage. Street flooding is possible in trouble spots like Morrissey Boulevard. Swollen rivers are also expected to cause local flooding. This is WBUR. Recently on Wait, Wait, we learned where panelist Shantira Jackson perches on the economic ladder. Do you have a Tesla? No, I'm a comedian. (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. If you have a Tesla, please do not take your hands off the wheel when you listen to this week's show with special guest Jason Isbell, even though Elon says you can. That's the news quiz from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and as they say on the T-shirt, it's time for sports. Legends move on. Nick Saban retires. Bill Belichick leaves the Patriots, but B.J. Lederman still does our theme music. Howard Bryant of Metalwork Media joins us. Howard, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Fine. We don't even have time to mention Pete Carroll. (laughs) Showing the door in Seattle. Let me ask you, Nick Saban, head coach, University of Alabama football, six national championships. Uh, He also won a national championship with LSU. He retires as the sixth winningest college football coach of all time. What do you think his legacy is? Well, it's going to be real interesting. I mean, the legacy and the accomplishments, as we know, are two different things. And so we'll see what this move and, and, and what his effect has been on, on the sport as time goes on. I wonder if he and Mike Krzyzewski of Duke are both going to be folks recognized and sort of remembered at the end as as coaches who did not want to deal with this new world of NIL and transfer portals where the coaches don't have as much power as they used to have. Obviously, when you look at the scoreboard, you look at what he did 
unparalleled as a as a coach, especially in this in this modern era. But the legacy of Nick Saban, I I want to see. There's so much change in college football. Is he simply going to be one of the greatest coaches of all time, or is this going to have some lasting effect on how coaching takes place? Yeah. One legacy of Saban obviously is the ridiculous amount of money these coaches now make. He was making <laughs> roughly almost $14 million total. Yeah. Um, Bill Belichick is departing as the head coach of the New England Patriots after 24 seasons where they won six Super Bowls. Howard, how controversial is it if we call Bill Belichick the best head coach in NFL history who ever had Tom Brady as a quarterback? <laughs> well, certainly I don't think it's going to be controversial. I think the controversy of him will always be the the deflate gates and the spy gates and all those yeah. things. But I think even those will begin to recede when you look at what he did for that franchise. And I think anybody up here in New England knows there were the New England Patriots before and then there are the New England Patriots after, and 19 straight winning seasons, nine Super Bowl appearances, six Super Bowl championships. And also to do it, that ha to have that kind of consistency to do it in an era where the rules of the NFL essentially force you to get rid of players because of the salary cap and, and all of that and the money being what it is. So for him to keep that team together is remarkable. Also, when it comes to Belichick, fascinating that both he and Nick Saban coaches together on the Cleveland Browns teams in the early 1990s yes. both quit together. Belichick will be 72 in April, and Nick Saban is 72 now. And Cleveland's in the playoffs. Uh, Cleveland Cle rocks this weekend. Uh, let, let me ask you, which, which game should we look for? I, I worry about the players at Kansas City, Kansas City-Miami. Kansas City Miami is going to be a great game. Uh, maybe the two best teams in the in the conference playing in the opening round and not in the, you know, not in the conference championship. I'm interested in seeing what Buffalo does, but I got to tell you, Scott, the game that I'm really looking forward to is the Philadelphia Eagles and the and the Buccaneers. You may say, why? Why would you care about Baker Mayfield and the Tampa Bay Bucks? But I'm interested on the other side. Philadelphia was ten and one this year. And if yeah. the Eagles don't turn it around on Monday night, this is going to be an epic collapse that folks are talking about. But they say the playoffs is a new season, so we'll see what they do. But I'm, I'm looking at the Philadelphia Eagles. Hey, Joe Flacco and the Browns is a great story, isn't it? Also a good story. And they're a great story, and so, and so is the Detroit Lions hosting, uh, you know, so hosting a playoff game for the first time in, in what, 30 years? Yeah. They, host, you know, they are one of the worst football teams in the history of football. And so when they're playing in the postseason, I think it's always news. But I think that there are so many. We're always going to get great performances. Uh, one of these days, Pat Mahomes is actually going to play a road game in the playoffs. And it's, it's not going to be this weekend. But I think that when you're looking at the playoffs, Obviously, you want to know what the Dallas Cowboys want to do. And if you look all the way out, I still think that the two teams that we're going to pay most attention to are going to be Baltimore and San Francisco. Howard Bryant, thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Investors are sharing the news that Nippon Steel Corporation wants to buy U.S. Steel for nearly $15 billion. U.S. Steel stock price surged 26% on the news and has largely kept the gain since last month's announcement. But in and around Pittsburgh, where U.S. Steel is headquartered and operates three plants. The shock is giving way to outrage. Member station WESA's Oliver Morrison reports. For decades, George DeBolt has given tours of former industrial sites around Pittsburgh. To understand why the proposed sale of U.S. Steel is causing such a firestorm, DeBolt suggested we drive to Homestead, just south of Pittsburgh. 
an open-air shopping mall, now stands where the world's largest steel mill operated until 1986. There's little sign of the steel plant anywhere, just box stores, until we reach a tucked-away corner of a Lowe's hardware parking lot. What's coming over to the left? 12,000-ton press. The 120-year-old press is a behemoth, two stories of crushing metal hydraulics. It was used at the end of the steelmaking process to flatten massive steel slabs into sheets. The bolt reads from a small sign next to the press. Many World War II battleships were outfitted with armor plate from this press, including the USS Missouri, the ship on which the Japanese signed the Articles of Surrender that ended the war. In those days, DeBolt says, U.S. Steel became synonymous with U.S. might. So it's not just that U.S. Steel announced it was being sold, but that it was being sold to a foreign company and a Japanese one at that. How about that for irony? Another explanation for the local backlash? Some feel it's history repeating. Mike Stout was the last worker out when the Homestead Works closed in 86. He was also the plant's union representative. Was tens of thousands of steel workers lost their jobs illegally, were denied pensions, were denied severance pay, and the result uh, was the complete, utter destruction of the Monongahela Valley. Many towns in the valley never recovered from the economic decline and still suffer health problems from the last few operating steel plants. According to Stout, the company broke its promise to the steelworkers repeatedly. The most recent betrayal, Stout says, was just a couple of years ago, when U.S. Steel backpedaled on a promise to invest more than a billion dollars into its remaining Pittsburgh-area steel plants. Months later, U.S. Steel announced it was investing billions of dollars in a new non-union steel plant in Arkansas. Chris Bream, a regional economist at the University of Pittsburgh, says U.S. Steel should have been investing in its Pennsylvania plants a half-century ago. U.S. Steel's new plants in Arkansas utilize electric arc furnaces, which are cheaper and cleaner than the massive blast furnaces still in use near Pittsburgh. It doesn't really matter whether it's retained by U.S. Steel or bought by Nippon Steel or one of the other potential competitors. Without a lot of investment, it probably isn't going to stay open. United Steelworkers President Dave McCall is worried Nippon will further steer investment to non-union plants in Arkansas. And he says opposition to a foreign buyer is a matter of principle, even if Japan is now one of our closest allies. We've got to be able to make things here in America and control things here in America. Several Pittsburgh-area Democratic congressmen sent a letter to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urging her to block the proposed sale, arguing that core industries should not be dependent upon foreign actors. Even President Biden has called for scrutinizing the sale. Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Bob Casey says it's a matter of national security. You can't exist as a nation if you don't have a manufacturing base, and steel is a, is a big part of that. Casey voted for several laws to encourage manufacturing in the U.S., the laws offer billions of dollars in incentives for companies to build American factories for things like electric car batteries and computer chips. That is one reason why Nippon Steel says they want to buy the company in the first place, increase demand for American-made products. Charlie McAllister wrote a book about labor issues in Pittsburgh's steel industry, and he thinks that new Japanese owners might take a different approach to the roughly 3,000 plant workers who are left. They had a certain responsibility toward their workers, and they are... They have been geniuses at involving workers in the production process from below. McAllister thinks the sale might be the last chance for steel to regain its foothold in steeler country. For NPR News, I'm Oliver Morrison in Homestead, Pennsylvania. A little girl named Tato sneaks a few cherry plums before she races off to help her grandmother, Babo, 
for the favorite chore. It's rug washing day. My name is Astrid Kamalian. I'm an author who was born in Yerevan, but I moved to the United States back in 2015. Astrid Kamalian writes in her new children's book, Babo, we scrub. Brushes bop, bop, bop until our hands are warm, until our knees and toes tingle a little, until it's time to clear the foam, time to slide. So the pitch for it is a bunch of kids, siblings and their friend, washing rugs with their grandma, which when you hear the pitch, what is there to it, you know? But as you read the book, and especially as you look at the illustrations, you know that it's actually a book about Armenian joy, and about the beauty of Armenian family. It has so much of what made our childhood so happy that is very difficult to describe with words, but it's right there in the book. For our children's book series, Picture This, Kamalyan explains why it was so important for her to work with an Armenian illustrator. We submitted the book, and then right after a war broke out in Armenia in 2020, it was a 44-day war, and authentic representation is key for me. And I suggested, hey, I have an illustrator in mind that I think would be perfect for this book because I admired Anait's work for years before I ever thought I'm going to be published. My name is Anait Simirjan, and I'm an illustrator. I moved to the United States from Armenia in 2012, and that's when my hobby of drawing grew into profession. Well, I didn't realize there's only like a three-year difference between you moving to the U.S. and me doing the same. Yeah, that's right. And Babo was such a great surprise. When I first read the manuscript, I was like, what? I think it's the most favorite activity in Armenia in summer. So we take rags outside, a hose with water, a soap, a brush, and you just wet it, you brush it, and everything ends up with water play because summers in Armenia are hot. All kids are wet and playing with water, soap, and this is how it is. The funny thing is that I had the memories of endless joy and happiness and sun and and all the smells. But what I forgot is that we had to turn the rugs over and wash the backs of the rugs. And when I was telling about the book to my grandma, she said, but how about the, the, the backs of the rugs? And I felt like a five-year-old girl, you know, when parents say, don't forget to wash behind your ears. And that literally went into the book. I did it with my grandma as well, but usually she would set it up and my cousins and siblings, we would start washing and then grandma would go away, do her business, and then she would come back and check if everything is done properly. There is no formal rules or ways or that's the beauty of it. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity to connect also with your own grandparents because they don't have to monitor anything or tell you what to do. You kind of just do it and have fun with it. There is nothing to break. <laughs> yeah, that there is no chance to break. Actually, though, do not follow the rug washing process described in the book. If you have heirloom carpets, have them professionally cleaned <laughs> <Just a little. laughs> because you don't know especially the older ones you have to be careful with the dyes and everything you can spoil the rug <laughs> when rug is soaked it's very slippery so be careful running on that rug <laughs> 
That's a little American side note, right? <laughs> I was so excited that I don't need to research how buildings or streets look like, what clothes Armenian kids would wear. The research was done on the rugs, though. Yes, because we never pay attention what colors and patterns are used on the rugs. I did a ton of research and I actually, one of my friends got me introduced to a carpet weaving expert and she knows how to weave carpets, but she also knows the history of Armenian carpets. So I would meet with the expert to make sure that every single sentence about the rug weaving process itself, as well as every single carpet that we have illustrated in the book is actually correct. It went down to like the details on the rugs, you know, how big or small the size of the detail on the rug. What are the combinations of colors on this specific rug? If you look at the dragon carpet, it's red, white, and blue. And if it were green, brown, and purple, you would know something is a little off. My favorite part is the table in the end of the book full of deliciousness. What you will see on the table is what usually I would eat at my grandma's house. It would be a walnut preserve. It would be gata. Gata is Armenian pastry. Sweet. <laughs> and actually the balcony on the first two pages with the door, it's the door from my grandma's house. So... <laughs> The balcony looks so much like my mom's balcony. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many magic in this book, honestly. <laughs> I was extremely lucky. I would open the page and it was like the sun was shining through the illustrations and it brought so much joy to just see them. It's interesting that, I mean, I've read the book a million times, obviously, but when I received the author copy a couple months before it was published and I read it to my kids, And I felt home. And I've never felt anything like that with a book. And I can't describe that feeling other than I felt home. So I hope a lot of readers who have similar experiences, they will feel home. That was author Astrid Kamalyan, an illustrator, and Ayit Simirjan, talking about their children's book, Baba. Our series Picture This is produced by Samantha Balaban. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock. 
On Monday, the first ballots of the 2024 presidential election season will be cast in Iowa. Listen Monday night at 8 for live special coverage of the Iowa Republican Caucus. That's here on 90.9 WBUR. It's 49 degrees in Boston. A coastal flood warning is in effect. The rain will taper off this morning. Windy today. Highs in the 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Director James Samuel loves epic biblical movies, but... Jesus didn't grow up in Buckingham Palace. Jesus grew up in the hood. But that's not what I've been given. I've been given Charlton Heston. James Samuel takes it back to 29 CE for his new movie, The Book of Clarence. We talk about black Jesus, white Jesus, and the power of faith later on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.